Well, this morning, I am excited about our time together and what we're going to be talking about this morning. We're going to be talking about the second coming of Jesus Christ. And this is just glorious good news. I don't know how much time uh, you have spent in studying that. If you understand that the gospel of Jesus Christ as good news, it really begins in many ways with his death and burial and resurrection and how through that amazing unique work that we might be forgiven of our sins, that we might have the righteousness of Christ imputed to our account, and that we might through that have eternal life. And this is good news. This is good news for you and for me individually. And if you've been at this church long, you know that each time, every week that we are together, I call to you individually to make a decision for Christ, to come after Christ individually. But there's more going on than just you and your relationship with Jesus. There's something called a, a meta-narrative or the big, big picture of what is going on in the world. And in the big picture of what is happening in the world, you have the first coming and then the second coming of Jesus Christ. The first coming of Jesus Christ is the most important event that ever happened in the history of the world. It literally split time in half. And we recognize time as based on who and what happened before Christ came and then what happened after Christ came. And the second coming of Jesus Christ is the next major event in the meta-narrative of the world, what is happening in the world. And this is not something that is just sort of tagged on to the end of the Bible or, or an addition to Bible teaching. Jesus spoke often clearly and powerfully of his second coming. And it is all throughout the writings of the New Testament. It is a constant, consistent theme. And what I want you to understand this morning is that it is part of the gospel. It is part of the good news of Jesus Christ. That if you don't see the second coming of Christ as good news and the culmination, the finishing work of Jesus Christ in the world, then you have missed something about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so I ask you this morning, have you considered from the scriptures what the Bible says about the second coming of Jesus Christ? And so I hope you'll listen carefully this morning as we read. We're in Luke chapter 17 this morning, continuing in Luke. Uh, there will actually only be one more sermon in Luke before we will take a break from Luke and go to the Old Testament. But we are in Luke 17, verses 20 through 37 this morning. And for, we're going to reference it often today, but there's a companion passage to this, if you're taking notes, which is Matthew 24, 3 through 31, another passage in the Gospels where Jesus spends a lot of time talking about his second coming and the nature of it. So please, let's stand to honor the Lord as we read his word in Luke chapter 17, verses 20 through 37. Being asked by the Pharisees, and that is Jesus, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered, Then the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, Look here or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And he said to the disciples, The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, Look there or look here. Do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But the first 
But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Verse 28. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down and take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together, and one will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, Where, Lord? And he said to them, Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. Okay, so we have the Pharisees here again, the religious leaders of that time, and they ask a good question. Last week we had a a person that did not believe asking a good question. This week we have also people that didn't believe asking good questions. People ask good questions. I hope you're asking questions. Some people just don't care, and since they don't care, they don't ask questions. But when we ask questions, you will find in the scriptures good answers to your questions. And then it comes down to whether or not you're going to listen to the answers of those questions and believe the answers to those questions. Because a great many people hear the good answer, but then they don't want to believe and they go away. And so the question here is, when will the kingdom of God come? When will the kingdom of God come? Now, back then, they were expecting that Jesus was going to be a great political leader and help them overthrow the situation in Israel, which was being occupied by Rome. But Jesus never goes down that road. And here he answers them this way. The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Really interesting word here. James Edwards, who is a commentator and Bible scholar, talks about this word observed. This is a unique word in all of the New Testament. The New Testament was originally written in Greek, and this particular Greek word is only used one time in the New Testament, and that's right here. And it is a technical Greek term for calculating future events by observing the stars. What an interesting thing. So the kingdom of God is not coming in a way that can be observed. And what this is specifically speaking about is looking at astrology or some other way of trying to predict the future. You will never be able to predict the timing of the coming of the Son of Man. These things will not be predicted. Many people still look to the stars, to astrology. They think that the movement of the stars are somehow connected to spiritual or future events and that by looking at the stars, we might be able to predict those things that are to come. But Jesus says this is not the case. By astrology or any other means, we cannot predict the timing of the second coming of Jesus. Many have tried and many have failed. Verse 21 says that we also cannot predict the place of the coming of the kingdom of God. Look here, look there. You will not find the kingdom of God because it is not a political kingdom. It is not of this world. 
when Jesus was standing before Pilate and Pilate was questioning him at his trial, trying to figure out what kind of a rebellion this guy was leading and what type of people he was leading. And he said to Pilate in no uncertain terms, my kingdom is not of this world. And so it is a spiritual kingdom. And many have made that mistake. One of the greatest was the English Puritans who tried to fuse together the kingdom of men and the kingdom of God into a a great protectorate, if you will, where the church and the state were fused together into one thing. And it did not work out well because the kingdom of God is not of this world. And you cannot raise up the kingdom of God in this world. And so he says something very interesting that we're going to spend some time on. He says in verse 21... For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Now, if you look down at the bottom of your Bible, you might see some other, there are other alternate translations, different ways that this can be translated. One of the other ways this could be translated, possibly, is that the kingdom of God is within you. But the English Standard Version goes with in the midst of you because of what it theologically conveys, and I agree with it. The kingdom of God being within you tends to lead us to the understanding of this passage being that that has to do with the indwelling Holy Spirit. But chronologically, we have not reached the point of Pentecost yet at this time. And so the Holy Spirit is not indwelling them in the way that he will in a short period of time. But the in the midst of you works perfectly with Jesus Christ standing right there with them. Jesus Christ is the king of the kingdom of God. He is the son of God incarnate. And he is in an unusual way in that period of history standing with them and before them. And when the king is present, the kingdom is present with him. When there is no king, the kingdom falls apart. But where the king is, he is the kingdom. And Jesus is the head of the kingdom of God. And he is in the midst of these people. But they do not recognize him, and they do not honor him, and they do not lift him up. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. But this points to something that is very, very important for us to understand about the kingdom of God. Jesus coming and being born and living a life, truly God, truly man, upon the earth, is the inauguration or the beginning of the kingdom of God, if you will. This is often spoken of as the already and the not yet. The already is that Jesus was already with them. And the kingdom of God had begun its coming. It had been inaugurated, if you will. And it was going to continue on with the great day of Pentecost and the sending of the Holy Spirit. And that the saving work of God had begun, but it was not yet complete. It was ongoing. And when Jesus ascended into heaven, it was not yet complete. It was ongoing. And the saving work of God and his kingdom is ongoing yet now in our time. Yes, it has begun. It is already, but it is also not yet. Because we'll see as this passage goes on that there's much more yet to come. There is a a culmination or a, a consummation, if you will, of the saving work of God. The saving work of God is underway, but there will come a time when the purposes of God in the world will be complete that his saving work in the world will be finished. And it is not according to the will of man, but according to the will of God. That when God has finished his work in the world, he will send his son Jesus, and it will be the end of all things. And this will be the second coming of Jesus Christ. And this is where Jesus spends the rest of his time. So he goes on in talking about sort of the basic timeline of what we can expect 
Though there is no day that can be predicted, there is a progression that we can expect. And one of the things that is very important about this begins to unfold in verses 22 and 23. And he said to the disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there and look here, do not go out or follow them. So he's talking about days of darkness and people trying to distract us and turn us away from the narrow way of Christ. And there are so many passages about this. I'm going to read three or four that I think are very important and representative, but we could go on and on about these things. But the point of this is that from the ascension of Jesus Christ to his second coming, we should not expect ease, and we should not expect things to keep getting better and better and better until we have some utopia here on earth. Instead, what we expect from the teaching of Christ is that there will be many false teachers, that many people's hearts will grow hard and fall away, and that it will be a struggle to maintain belief in Jesus Christ, and that we will have to stay focused on him and listen to him and study his word and be near unto him in order to walk in that way. And so I'm going to start in Matthew chapter 7. Uh, yeah, here we go. I got my little page flyaway. This, this, is how, this is how I do it, Clay. I get this little thing that a friend of mine gave me that uh, holds the pages down. But when it's turning pages, it gets difficult. Matthew 7, 7, 15 through 20 says this, beware of false prophets who will come in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Their grapes gathered from, are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit. Can a diseased tree bear good fruit? Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. So he warns us of false teachers, and sometimes it's hard like, to, to know who's teaching the truth and who's not teaching the truth you got to be a fruit inspector. The fruit test is, what does this person's life look like? How does this work out in their life? And if we're not sure about their teaching, we should look carefully at their life. Just this past week, uh, my boys and I were reading in, in first, first Timothy related to the qualifications of deacons and elders. And most of those qualifications are the fruits of their life. How does it work out? Are they righteous, honorable people in following after the Lord? Well, Matthew 24 also warns us, in this companion passage, warns us against false teachers in a number of places. But in 9 through 13, it says this, Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will rise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And you look at our day and age and you see many things like this. I, I love reading old Christian writings. And almost every Christian has felt that their day and age was characterized by these things. They looked out and they saw people that hated each other, people that were striving against each other's false teachers, lawlessness, and we see all of that in our day and age as well. We should not be surprised by those things. Jesus told us that these things would come. He goes on in verse 21 here to speak of a great tribulation that is to come. In verse 21, 
For then there will be a great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look here, uh, is the Christ. There he is. Do not believe. Very similar language to our, our chapter 17. Look here. Look there. Trying to distract you. Do not believe it. Verse 24. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead people astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, uh, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe. So it's a warning. It's a warning that things are not going to get better. They're going to get worse. But remember back a few weeks ago from this great commission of Jesus before he ascended into heaven. He said, lo, I will be what? I will be with you always to the end of the age. And we know what it means to go through hard times and how hard it is or even impossible it is to go through hard times alone. But you can go through just about anything when you go through it with people that love you and are your friends and are your companions. And when Jesus is our nearest companion through these things, we can go through anything and be carried through it by Jesus, our Lord. A couple of things from the New Testament. Uh, Paul writes of this often in his last letters. He writes about this twice. Uh, in, in, in some, these are just two representative passages, but in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, he writes to Timothy and says this, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the sin- insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Various false teachers. And then one of the greatest passages related to this is in 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 3, which says this, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty for people will be This is one of the worst lists in all the Bible. Lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable. Isn't that an interesting, like they can, unsatiable, no matter what you give them, they're never satisfied. Does that not describe so much of our day? But slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying the power. Avoid such people. So this is some of the expectation of what Jesus was setting and is carried on by the teaching of the apostles in the New Testament, that we should not be expecting things to get better and better. We should not be shocked when hard times come and when people's hearts are turned away from the Lord. But we must look at our own life and say, where does this leave us? What kind of person am I? We must not go away from the narrow way, but we must fix our eyes on Jesus. May your ears hear his word. May you spend time studying his word and hearing his voice each day. May you not seek a new thing, but may you walk in the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. Walk in the true and ancient path of Jesus Christ, for he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So this goes on in Luke 17 and verse 24. It says this, 
For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. So it goes from speaking in general terms to this speaking of this thing, this day of the Lord, which is not a figurative day. It's a day in time that only the Father knows. And it says that on this day, the coming of the Lord will be something like lightning. As lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will it be in the the coming of the Son of Man. The first coming of Christ was marked by humility and quietness. He was born in a stable to poor parents in a small town and very few people knew about it. The second coming of Christ will be the opposite of this. It will be like lightning. It will be sudden. It will be powerful. It will be luminous and glorious from horizon to horizon and awe-inspiring for all of the world to see and know. The same description is given in part in Matthew 24, 27. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. And so this passage is part of where a great Christian tradition came from, the idea that Christ will come like lightning from the east to the west. And many a Christian has had their body buried facing east, seeking the coming of Christ. That's the way I want to be buried. I want my body to be buried in faith, believing that Jesus will come again and my body will be raised from the dead. It is a hope. The first Thessalonians 4, 15 through 18 gives us much more clarity on what this day will be like. 1 Thessalonians 4, 15 through 18 says this, For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. And so what we have here is a coming together of descriptions. Again, this coming of the Lord, the day of the Lord, the return of Christ will not be quiet. It will not be secret. It will be announced loudly, as it says, with the cry of command, the voice of the archangel. The archangel is the one who is in charge of the angelic armies of the Lord. With the sound of the trumpet of God, taking us back to thinking about uh, Mount Sinai and the sound of a tremendous trumpet coming from the mountain and striking fear in the hearts of the people. And this power and glory of the coming of Jesus Christ will be likened to lightning in the sky. It will be luminous, powerful, glorious, seen by all the world in a moment's time. And in this moment in time, there will be a progression that the believing dead, their bodies will be resurrected first. And the scripture talks often about resurrection. Jesus as the first resurrected from the dead. But those that believe in Christ Jesus will also live and their bodies will be resurrected. This is part of what the Bible teaches about eternity. We will not exist in eternity as disembodied spirits floating around as some would have you to believe. But we will be joined with a resurrected body and we will be known as each other. 
We will still be who we are, just like Jesus was who he was when he was resurrected from the dead, but he was glorious, and so it will be for all who are in Christ Jesus. But there will be those who are alive when Jesus comes, alive on the earth, the final generation. That's wild. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But uh, they will be caught up from the earth to join Jesus, and it says to be with him always. Because Jesus says, I have prepared a place for you. I want you to be where I am. That's amazing, by the way, that Jesus desires fellowship with us and wants us to be in his presence and glories in that day. And these words are written by Paul that we might encourage one another with these things. Yes, things are hard, things are difficult, but be encouraged that there is a coming yet of our Lord Jesus. The glorious second coming of Jesus will be with great power and with complete authority to deliver his people from tribulation in a most desperate hour. It will be a generation greatly honored that remains faithful to the end and will receive a crown of life. And we understand what this means. When something great happens, when things are otherwise going pretty good, we're, we're thankful for it, but we're not thankful for it like when things are desperately bad and you get to a place where the hardship is so great, you say, God help me, there's got to be deliverance soon. I just, I cannot do this any longer. Help me. And when God brings in deliverance at that moment in time, that is when cause for rejoicing is the greatest. You say, hallelujah, thank you, Jesus, that you have supplied what I needed at the moment that I needed it most. And we have this picture of this is what will happen in this great as it says, a tribulation unlike any other, but the people of God, not destined for wrath, will be delivered from that. Verse 25, it goes on in the Gospel of Luke. But first, so this coming like lightning will come, but we're back to Jesus talking with his disciples, but not yet. I'm here, the kingdom of God has begun, but it's not yet here, it's not yet finished. Verse 25, but first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. So that's some glorious good news, but we're not there yet. Before we get there, I've got to go to the cross. And if you turn your Bible over just one page to Luke 18, he says for a third time, tells them exactly what's going to happen in Luke 18, 31. Taking the 12, he said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. And he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spat upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. But they understood none of these things. These sayings were hidden from them and they did not grasp what he said. So Jesus knew what was coming. He's telling us what's coming. But many of the meanings of these things, just like were hidden from his disciples in his first coming, will be hidden from us in his second coming. There's much mystery, and so we must walk by faith. But before the second coming of Christ, the cross must be completed in his first coming. And so the sufferings of Christ are foretold. But after the sufferings of Christ and Christ has ascended into heaven, he tells us very clearly that you and I as the church will share in his sufferings. You know, like, whoa, Pastor Vic, that was, I was not signing up for that. Like, that's not why I came here today to hear that message. But that's the message of the New Testament. Paul says very clearly in Philippians 1, for it has been granted to you 
That's usually something great, like you won a prize, you've been granted something. What has been granted to us as Christians? It has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. And Peter writes, rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. When will the glory of the risen Lord Jesus be revealed? It will be revealed at his second coming. And so it is that when we join in the sufferings of Christ, that we walk in his way, and we will be relieved of these things one day when we see his glory revealed, either by dying and passing into heaven or his second coming to us in the full revelation of his glory. But it is not an ease, a path of ease that Jesus lays out for his disciples, but something of struggle but something that is of dependence so that they depend upon Jesus and walk with Jesus and in that find him true and good. So what will the times be like before Jesus comes? This is what he transitions to in verse 26. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. This is not the only place where this is mentioned, by the way. There are three times in Scripture where it specifically talks about the second coming of Christ being like the days of Noah. And so if you think of Noah as only a children's story or a myth, you've got a problem, something difficult to deal with because Jesus himself said his second coming was going to be like the days of Noah. What were the days of Noah like? Well, as Jesus is describing them, they were like every other day. People were just going about their business, doing their thing. They were marrying, giving in marriage, conducting business. But the overall tenor of the day was that great violence and evil and perversion had corrupted all the hearts of men, and they had turned away from God, and they would have nothing to do with what Noah said to them. They thought Noah was a fool and an idiot, and they rejected what he had to say. And so when the judgment of God came, they were all swept away for their rejecting of the word of the Lord. A flood of judgment came and destroyed all those but that were chosen for righteousness. A flood came at God's appointed time. It didn't come at Noah's time. It didn't just happen to blow up in a big blustery day. It was appointed by God. And once the judgment began, there was no opportunity for reversal or escape. But those who feared God and who believed in him, they escaped by the mercy of the Lord. And so it is with Lot the days of Lot. You might not know who Lot is. So Lot is from Genesis 18 and 19. Lot was the nephew of Abraham. He was a righteous man, the Bible says. And when he went out, when Abraham went out by the calling of the Lord, Lot believed God and went out with Abraham. So he was a companion to Abraham in his calling. But eventually he settled in an area called Sodom that, as we know, was a greatly wicked place. And it says in verse 20, 28, Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating, drinking, buying, selling, planting, building. What does that mean? They just, they, the days were going on like the days always go on. But the characteristic of those days, as we know from Genesis and elsewhere in the Scripture, 
were wickedness. They were greatly wicked, especially characterized by sexual wickedness in that place and in that time. And they rejected the warning of God, and there was none righteous found in that city except for Lot and his children and his wife. But we're going to talk about that one in a moment. So God sends judging fire to destroy this place, sent by God at his time and in his way. But again, the righteous, the few righteous are delivered by the mercy and the hand of God. And so this verse that we cannot miss, if you underline verses in your Bible, this is one to underline, verse 30. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. I don't know how you can be much clearer than that. He's trying to give us two very clear examples of the way God has acted in the past, that in that way, God is going to act again. So get ready. And when the Son of Man comes, people are going to be going about their normal everyday business just like they do. They couldn't care less about God. But the overall tenor of the world is going to be that of great wickedness and rebellion and violence and sexual promiscuity and unbelief and all these things. And that God's people are going to be persecuted because of it. And there will be a complete disregard for God and people's daily dealings. But God will suddenly break in to save the righteous and judge the world. And it will be a matter of life and of death. Life for those who believe and death for those that do not. He who once rode on a humble and borrowed donkey will no longer be riding on such a humble way. In Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 17, it speaks about the coming Lord Jesus and his power in his second coming. And John writes, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and the one sitting on it called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And so this will be the second coming of Christ with great power in great glory, the King of kings, and with him the archangel leading the armies of God, crying out to the world with a loud voice in the same way that we see him calling in 1 Thessalonians 4. On that day when the Son of Man is revealed. Verse 31, on that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in his house not come down and take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. What is happening here? What is going on here? This goes back to the story of Lot. And the key phrase here is don't turn back. What is the turning back of Lot's wife? What is going on here? If we go back to that story, the angels were bringing these, this family out of this town to be destroyed. And they told them, do not look back. Well, Lot's wife did. She looked back. And it says she was turned to a pillar of salt. She was lost. She was destroyed along with the city. And what in the world is this? What's the big deal about looking back? Well, the big deal about looking back is it has to do with the affections of our heart. It is a phrase related to looking at something longingly. 
You know what it means to go away from something, but you look back at it and you're like, man, I, I really wish. That's where I really want to. I have to be over here, but this is where I really want to be. This is what I love. And when the Lord God tells us to not look back with longing at the world, it means that we long for his coming. And this passage has to do in some mysterious way with Jesus coming and people somehow still on the fence. And they're looking at the world and they're looking at the coming of Christ and they're like, ah, I really, I really, I really want to be with the world. I love the world. The world is what I want. And the scriptures are warning us here that if you love the world, you will never enter the kingdom of God. We talk about this all the time. The love of Christ must be first in our heart to where the appearing of Jesus Christ, everything behind us is of nothing. We want only to see the face of our Savior and love him because we love his appearing and we seek his face and we do not look back. And so it is yet another warning that whosoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. Our affections, our hearts are turned towards Jesus Christ above all things, and we look away from the world. And so ending in verse 34 and 35, we have the great separation. Verse 34 and 35 says, I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken, the other left. Two grinding together, one taken, one left. It says, on that day, in verse 31, that day, that day of the second coming of Christ, that day when the glory of Jesus is revealed, the separation of the righteous from the wicked and them being gathered up to Christ, Lord, this goodbye, is never spoken of as a secret event. The great final divine separation of the righteous and the wicked occurs on the day of the second coming of Christ. It says there will be two in one bed, one taken, two working, one taken. Where are they going? They're being taken up to meet Christ who is descending from heaven. They're joining him there. They are those who are alive in Christ on that final day. Frequently, Jesus spoke about how only God knows the nature of the final believing and the unbelieving. That's why we have this separation at the end. I cannot look out over this audience and say who is and who is not a believer in Christ with any finality. I will look at the fruit of your life and I will see what comes from your life based on what you believe and from that I will do the best I can to discern who is and who is not a Christian. But only the Lord God himself knows ultimately what is going on in the heart of each and every person. And Jesus spoke of this in the parable of the wheat and the tares. There's this parable of a field being sowed with both wheat and weeds and they're kind of growing up together. And it's a picture of the world and the church and I can't separate these things out. The parable says that only God will sort it out in the end. The scene of the sheep and the goats before the kingdom of God, before the throne of Christ, a final separation where Jesus separates those who are believing from those that are unbelieving. He who knows, his, knows the hearts of the righteous and the wicked and will separate them. They are separated to eternal punishment and to eternal life. In the final example is how only God can rightly separate the righteous from the wicked is, a, is an important example for us in Scripture, which is Judas Iscariot. Judas Iscariot, one of the 12 who walked with, was with, around, part of everything that Jesus did, and nobody seemed to grasp that he wasn't a believer. In the end, they weren't like, oh yeah, I always knew that about Judas. Judas was always a mess. No, he had them all fooled. Only he knew in his heart, and God knew that his faith was unbelieving. He was not true. 
And so in the end, we will have the separation, the great separation by Jesus Christ of the righteous and the wicked. And on that day, they will be separated. So I'm going to close with this. I want to appeal to you a few things that are of great importance once I get back to wherever I was here. All right. This passage is meant to be of great hope and encouragement to you in Christ that we should not lose heart, that we should persevere, that Jesus will overcome the world. And that we don't know. For generations, people have wondered, will I be a part of that final and last generation? I don't know. But whether I am or I am not, I will live my life in expectation of the coming of Jesus Christ. And I will seek his face and I will not look back at this world and I will be greatly encouraged that Jesus has not abandoned me, but that he is with us always until the end of the world and he will carry us through. But for those of you that do not know Christ today, those that you that have not firmly put your faith in Christ, those of you that love this world or care little about God or waver back and forth as to what you believe about Jesus, you must know from this passage that Jesus is coming again, that he is coming again at a time that you do not expect. But the beautiful thing about his not yet coming is that Peter writes very clearly the reason why Jesus has not yet returned. It says that he delays his coming that more might believe, that more might be saved, that you, if you do not know Christ as your Savior and have not firmly placed your faith in him, that today you might know Christ as your Savior. The Lord God is delaying his coming because of mercy and grace for you. I appeal to you today with a great sense of urgency, but I appeal to you with great concern because I want to see you accept the mercy of Christ Jesus and not be lost. The way of salvation is open to you in Christ by mercy and grace, that you accept Christ, that you pray for faith, that you confess your sins to him and you will be saved that you will be counted with the people of God, loved of the Lord, welcomed into his kingdom, a place prepared for you, the righteousness of Christ accounted to your account, that God might see you always with favor. This is the salvation of Jesus Christ, and I appeal to you today, believe in Jesus. Don't go away from this place ignoring the second coming of Christ. May it be a part of your story in your life so that when Christ comes again, you will rejoice in his coming. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for this time. Thank you for this opportunity to look at this set of glorious passages. And I pray, God, that we would be greatly encouraged by this today. Whatever believer that is here that is struggling, they feel the time of hardship and the great unbelief and wickedness and violence and trouble of this world, and it is weighing down upon them heavily. I pray, God, that they would be encouraged today in knowing that you know these things are happening. And that by your spirit, you might encourage them and renew their faith today and knowing that Christ will yet come again in glory and power and make these things right would encourage our hearts and our souls. And Father, I pray for any person and every person that is here today that has not put their faith in you, that today they would believe in Jesus Christ, that they would accept the mercy of Christ. They would confess their sins and know 
that they need a savior and that they would not be distracted by the things of the world, that they would not love the things of the world, that they would not have hearts of perversion and violence and worldliness, but that they would see the dead and the endless, the ends of those ways that have nothing to offer and that they would come to Christ today. Lord Jesus, we love you and we thank you for these things. In Christ's name we pray, amen.